0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Susan Freeman, and this is the Freeman Means Business podcast, where we welcome professionals who share valuable insights that lift others in professional services. Whether it's a personal story they're telling or sharing best practices in their profession, they do help to change the world for the better, and I like to have those folks in my world and now share them with you via my podcast. Listeners can tune in to Freeman Means Business on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and other channels on the web. Today's guest is Mike O'Hara. Many of you know Mike. In fact, probably most of my listeners know Mike as the coach. Mike, welcome, and tell us a bit about your background and what you're doing.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate that, Susan, and uh, thanks all of you for joining us. Uh, well, I've—you I've, uh, <laughs> might think I'm a little slow when I tell you this—but I've spent 25 years trying to solve a problem, and I finally figured it out. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess points for persistence, if not acute sharpness. You know? so, uh, but no, no kidding aside. Um, in in all those years, all of the firms that hired me to to train and coach their lawyers all experienced a similar effect, where about 80% of the lawyers that that they invested in wasted their money and their time and their effort. That is, they wasted the firm's money, time and effort because they just really didn't want to learn and didn't want to do it and they, they did nothing. You know, they, they, they abandoned it essentially. So I could never identify the 20% and I finally figured out how to do it. it only took me 25 years. <laughs>
0: So I have to say, I've been in, in law firms for 18 years or so, and I've seen exactly what you're talking about. We, we talk till we're blue in the face, and they nod their heads saying, yeah, what she said. Yeah, that makes sense. But then nobody goes and does it. You know, that the action is the most important. So what's the secret? So why, you know, what have you discovered, or do you want to hold out, make us hold out for that?
1: Oh, no, no, no. <clears throat> there are people that probably can't wait to abandon me, so I'm going to give it to them quick. <laughs> <So> they, um... <laughs> no
0: people want if to hear you
1: about your me, new life. If you'll indulge me a short, uh, a short anecdote, it will it'll give you a great uh, way to appreciate how this came about. Sure. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a startup venture with some uh, people in Silicon Valley. And we built software that eliminated hiring bias. And the way that it accomplished that was that it, instead of uh, companies interpreting credentials, such as from a resume or whatever, and, and from that trying to impute capabilities, we had the candidate demonstrate their capability by completing what we called a tryout. It was basically a work product exercise. So, you know, you, you would demonstrate that you could actually do the job. And that was the first exposure that anybody had to the candidate. They didn't know the name or the gender or their, whether they went to Stanford or Podoc or whatever, right? Those were all bias-inducing factors. So the only thing they saw was their performance. And it, it finally hit me that we can solve this problem with the lawyers the same way. So I've created a tool that lets the lawyers identify themselves and their seriousness of purpose through measured behavior. And I'll, tell, I'll explain more as we go on, but that's the essence of it is it's demonstration rather than interpretation.
0: That's pretty interesting, pretty amazing, and I think pretty popular, I would say, or unless it's so new, we need to get the word out. Um, Well, we're just,
1: we are just, thank you. That would be helpful. We are just launching right now. Uh, I'm doing a webinar on the 18th uh, to uh, show the data from my survey. Uh, We surveyed a few hundred uh, um, law firm leaders, such as CMOs, BDOs, practice group leaders, managing partners, and so forth. And they were talking about the percentage of waste that they experienced that I referenced at the outset here. So we'll share the results of that research and then we'll show you how to actually make the job simpler. And the good news for CMOs and BDOs is that there's no management overhead. They don't have to do anything until they have a decision to make. And then they've got a five minute exercise.
0: Well, considering that that's part of what I do, too, for a living, I'm curious to hear the results. So I'll be tuning in or. or... Thank you. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Um, I know a little bit about the ba- your background. I think it's very colorful, very interesting. Um, my father was a pathologist, but he was also a gemologist, just for fun. So tell me a little bit about what you did before you got into legal.
1: Well, as you say, I, I think it used to be described as a checkered background. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, when I was, when I, First out of college, I, uh, I was in the jewelry business, actually. That's how you and I were talking about your father's uh, background and I became a certified gemologist. I got so fascinated with the, the gem materials and all that sort of thing, and I wanted to learn a lot about it, and I thought, well, why don't I finish it? And so and I became a designer and did a lot of custom manufacturing and things like that. It was fun, but the business got boring, and I moved on, and then I was a headhunter in the IT industry, recruiting uh, technical people for software and hardware companies. And uh, I had the misfortune of being very good at it, but I didn't like it. <laughs> and so you, you tend to be a dilettante. Yeah, you do it, oh, make some money and then stop, and then make some money and stop like that. So that, you, you, know, you don't want to continue that too long. And then um, uh, the, the, I created a training program for the jewelry company that I had left. They were expanding crazily, and they were not growing managers fast as they needed to. So I created a sales training program, and that's how I really started getting going with that whole part of it. And, um, then in, in the, uh, it headhunting piece, I got a lot of people, colleagues calling me up, talking about deals that were cratering, you know, it's like, ah, this 11th hour, and I thought it was going to close and now it's cratering. And I was helping them, you know, dissect it and figure out where it broke down and reconstruct it from that point. And that, so that was the beginning of my coaching career. I didn't know it at the time because it was just helping out friends. Right. And, um, so then, you know, after that, I, I, then I did this startup where we, cr- we were a little ahead of the market, maybe about 15 years. We, we created what would now be called like a monster.com or something like that. It was, it was a recruitment tool and and that sort of thing. And this was before the internet. And so it had a really clunky, uh, interface and it, it was, uh, That's it, was incredible. Was, it was what it was at that time. But, uh, so then, you know, you, you move on, and then I got into the sports business, and I was selling uh, sponsorship to professional uh, tennis and sponsorship of uh, tennis players like Pete Sampras and Stefan Edberg and people like that back nice. in the day. Yeah, it was fun, but you couldn't make any money at it because everybody wanted to do it, right, so they didn't have right. to pay you. And um, then when uh, David Falk left ProServe, and took Michael Jordan and a bunch of the cash flow with them. It was time for a number of us to figure out what we were going to do next. And so uh, I happened to um, uh, sell a tennis sponsorship to then Howry and Simon. And um, the reason they wanted to buy a tennis sponsorship in Washington is because it was a place they could hang out with their clients, you know, who wouldn't normally have any reason to hang out in D.C. for uh, you know litigation clients. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. So... We did that, and then, as I say, David Falk left, and that that created that whole thing. But in the course of doing that, um, uh, the co- the consultant who who had I'd done the the law firm deal with said, "Here's a problem you might be interested in." He said, "The managing partners of all these firms I work with tell me they've got partners that know everybody, but don't bring in business." I said, "Really?" They can get in the right room he said yeah i said this is too easy we can fix this tomorrow <laughs> so I, I interviewed a bunch of his clients to figure out the cultural look and feel and that sort of thing and we went to market with it and 20 27 years later here we are
0: that's amazing so i think that um a lot of people listening will relate to the fact that lawyers can have clients uh, or, or friends and have difficulty turning them into clients or they can have clients that then become their friends and they can't expand that relationship because then they're afraid to make, you know, bring in new business from friends, if you will. So they do a lot of client entertainment. Um, I know in my history, I would ask the lawyers, what are you planning to learn? What new information do you want to uncover? And when they'd come back, I'd say, what did you learn? What information did you uncover? And it was like, we can't really talk about anything that happened on that client visit. (laughs) So, Those days of client entertainment are over and we really have to focus on, you know, expanding those relationships in a more professional way. So how can lawyers benefit from your services most? Well, I think it has
1: less to do with me than with a couple of principles and philosophies that I think would benefit them greatly. One, for the entire time I've been in this business, there's been this mantra. It's all about relationships. And I'm uh, very much a contrarian on that point. I think that the relationship mantra was relevant and useful back in the days of high demand. You know, Before the 2008 Great Reset, it was a seller's market. And if you, if you couldn't get business up until 2008, you were doing something really, really wrong because everybody was buying. In 2008, it switched from a seller's market to a buyer's market. And when you persist in the relationship first approach, what you're doing is you're embracing for the buyer and the seller a huge level of overhead that's completely unnecessary. I think lawyers would even acknowledge now that, you know, when they try to do the social things and they try and use the relationship building first, that they're getting a lot less success with it now because their, their clients and prospects, and they just don't have time for it. They don't have have time. They they, they know too many people. There's too many people trying to develop a relationship with them. And they they can't sustain that overhead, neither the buyer nor the seller. I've actually got a blog post that contains a a spreadsheet where I I mapped out what it costs to to do the traditional networking and relationship first approach. And basically in nine or ten months, you'll be dead. You know, if if you sustain this thing and you you keep persisting. So what I argue instead is to focus on relevance. You know, relevance to their job, to their industry, to their company, to their circumstances and that sort of thing. And uh, we've seen data that says that 70% of the buyer's journey occurs online now without their willingness to engage with any kind of a salesperson. So that means that you've got to be writing and speaking and blogging and podcasting and and all the things that you do and, and that many do because you're trying to form an ideal relationship with people. So there are people that have never met me that have hired me because over time they formed a relationship with my ideas, and a percentage of them decided that they liked those ideas and they sounded like they might work for them. So they knew me long before I knew them. At least they knew in how I thought about these this whole domain of you know business generation topics, and so I, I argue that you'd better the lawyers would be better served if they were to focus on an industry because all legal Demand emerges from business activity, business decisions, behaviors, attitudes, whatever. And so if you're speaking to an entire industry, you've got large, robust communication channels that reach that have really big reach and reasonable frequency when you when you aggregate. them. And so if you can form an idea relationship based upon the issues that are germane to that industry that people are obligated to pay attention to rather than you trying to induce them to pay attention to them. This is part of their job, you know, if if the cost of capital is going up, manufacturers have to take that into consideration. Technical companies have to pay attention to the fact that there's a a talent scarcity. And that people are moving back and forth between companies taking really valuable stuff in their brain with them. So the conversation about the challenges and the problems that an identifiable sector of people face assures your continuing relevance and you can have a sustained conversation with that industry. Now, I wish I could claim some brilliance for for coming up with this concept, but it was quite actually an accidental thing. 20 odd years ago, I was working with a product liability group at a firm and uh, a partner from the banking and finance group said, asked if he could spend a couple minutes before the practice group meeting to explain what banking and finance was doing. So this was obviously an attempt at cross selling. And so he explains they're doing A, B, C, and D. Dead silence around the table. Not a word from his colleagues about, oh, I should introduce you to that client or whatever. Nothing. So I happen to be sitting right next to this guy, and I'm feeling for him like a comedian that's bombing, right? so, so I asked what I thought was a pretty innocent question. I said, well, look, I'm not a product liability lawyer. I'm not a banking lawyer. I'm not any kind of lawyer. How would I know who needs you? He said, oh, and in the attempt to help me and bail me out, he said, Well, if this is happening, if X is happening, or Y is happening, or J is happening, or whatever. All of a sudden, the chatter started around the conference table. His colleagues hadn't heard their clients talking about legal service nouns like banking and finance. They had heard them talking about the shrinking margins on on short-term loans. They had heard them talking about that's And that's what they recognized. That was relevant to them. The legal service language is completely irrelevant, and ironically, when you use, if you're an employment lawyer, say, and you're trying to talk to somebody at a company, every time you say employment law, you reinforce the position of the incumbent because yeah. they own that word. You yeah. don't. So we need to own different words. And so we're, I'm arguing that, that the, they should strive for relevance because it's, one, more reliable and it can form a lasting market position. And that was a lot to say in one question, I'll... I'll, No,
0: that that was great. In fact, I don't think I've ever, you know, held back from interrupting (laughs) before. (laughs) Like, ask your friends, they know. Um, But I was biting my tongue. This is all so exciting. So I I do know that having worked with so many lawyers, I, I have, from their mouths to my ears, heard the words... I don't need to know the client's language, business, industry, competitive landscape, regulatory. I need to know the law. And, you know, you think I'd heard that 18 years ago, I did. But I also heard it, you know, just in recent history as well. So that's the shocker. (laughs) So let me ask you, um, you know, you are sort of, you call yourself the contrarian. I would agree. There are topics that you and I don't agree on, but we bring good information Um, to the table so that people can uh, review our sides of particular issues and make their own decision. And I like that. I'm all about giving merit to another stand. Um, I'm all about, you know, starting with fact-based information, sharing the data, et cetera. Um, One of those topics, and we don't need to get into this today, but just for the audience to know, one of those topics where Mike and I have a different point of view is the need to um, understand gender-based uh, communication style differences. So, if you want to have fun with that, look for Mike, Google Mike, and Google me on what our thoughts are on that issue. It's it's pretty fun, and we're still friends today. So, speaking of provocative or controversial or 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 things that you might deem yourself contrarian, or maybe others might deem you contrarian, what is uh, something you know provocative that you think that you can? share with the audience um, beyond just the the relationship building, because I happen to be one of those people that believes in building the relationship, but not in the same way. Uh, I might align with you if I were to have a chance to better explain that. Um, I do believe in the relationships, but again, relevance first. So relevance first. It's not about becoming chummy and, and wasting time and effort and money. All those lawyers have people nipping at their heels daily for their time and attention. So I do uh, see great value in your argument on that. But what other controversial topic do you find that you face out there in this marketplace? Um,
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, people have um, um, long disagreed with me on this one. Um, I think that when you receive an RFP request that you should throw it in the trash unopened.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board sort of, it's kind of like usually I'm on board sort of with Mike (laughs) Coro. I'm not totally jumping on the train as it leaves the station, but, um, I get that, that you should be very selective, but you're saying absolutely no, no doubt. Don't even open it. If you're thrown in that beauty contest, forget it. Why, why is that?
1: Well, most of I understand that there are uh, strategic sales that are made by predominantly really large firms to, with really, really large companies. And I realize that professional procurement executives are increasingly a part of that, that buying process. So, but I consider that kind of outlier activity. That's at the absolute top of the market for the largest you know, in, engagement portfolios with the largest firms and largest companies. The lawyers, I've worked with about 7,000 lawyers over the last 25 years, and none of them are involved in anything like that. What's more typical is you get an RFP, and your first knowledge of it is when you receive it. That tells you that you are on the outside looking in, and unless a miracle happens, you are wasting your time and money. And it's a lot of money. It's expensive to put these responses together. So unless you've got an insider who told you this is on its way, and this is what it's going to take to win, and I will help you win, it's a waste of time. Absolute waste of time. You are the cannon fodder that, that allows the buyers to say, oh, yes, we went through this objective process and picked my brother anyway. Surprise.
0: Ah, <laughs> I, see that. Yes. I see that now. That's, that's yeah. a good explanation.
1: Okay, so I just, there's better things to do. If, that, if, if you are saying, oh, I have to do this because it's in front of me, that tells me that you're not doing anything else in the market and you're in a desperate position. You don't want to be in a desperate position. I consider RFP responses to be the canary in the coal mine. It should be telling you that you should have a stronger market position where you know where your demand is originating from because it emerges from this problem that you talk about all the time and that the market is constantly filtering itself, saying, oh, I disagree with him, I agree with him, whatever. That's great, that's stratification. So that's probably one of the more controversial stances I've taken. And what I, what I find about that stance is that it illustrates the point of market stratification. When I say throw it away unopened, 20% of the people who hear that think I'm, I'm nuts. I'm dangerous, maybe. <laughs> uh, keep him away, he's crazy. That's okay. If we disagree that fundamentally and that strongly, we're not going to do business together. Why waste our time dancing around to find that out? You know, at great expense and effort. Let's just accept it. So they they filtered me out and they've done me a favor. At the other end, you know, in the middle, you got probably 60 percent that don't care one way or another what I said, either because the issue isn't you know imminent right now, or it's not in their purview or whatever. They're just going yeah, whatever. And at the other end of the spectrum is my tribe, as Seth, Seth Godin might put it. The twenty percent who are reading that read me saying that and they nudge each other. See? I told you. See? Yeah. They, think, they think I'm a genius. Why? Because
0: I sound like them. Yes, yes. So I, I I have to say, I you have converted me in this one conversation. So, Uh-oh. Yeah, crazy, huh? I, I think I'm losing my, you know, strong pudding. Um, but I will say that if you are put into those beauty contests, you have done a poor job maintaining what should have been the client-lawyer relationship all along. If this comes as a surprise to you, even with the new rules of procurement in the process, um, you know, if you didn't realize, if you calling your client saying, why did, why did I get this RFP, you know, or, or is there danger in our relationship? Then the fact that you even had to call and ask that um, or, or, or situations, for example, where a client might say, we need to lower our legal expenses. An attorney, an attorney will inevitably just say, okay, well, I'll discount my rate, which I take the controversial position that you should never do that. Exactly. You and I agree on that uh, as well. So um, I have said if you're the trusted advisor to your client and not just the lawyer who's billing them through the mail or email, then you would know better their business and their industry. And you'd know how to lower their legal expenses in other ways, maybe through more efficient processes or through technology that you have in place or could put in place or should have in place. Not just run to quickly lower or discount your rates. Um, Go right ahead. You have uh, something to say.
1: Well, the the other thing that the RFP, the, you know, the surprise RFP or the surprise anything tells you is that this is the indicator that this service has matured and therefore your pricing power and your access are going to decline along with it. So for example, in the late nineties, Dick Rudder, who was at the time a partner at Wilkie Farr was the first one to securitize a music portfolio for David Bowie and David Bowie cashed out. They, they issued a bond based upon the projected revenue stream of, of his portfolio. And they, uh, he cashed out for $55 million. That was the first time it ever happened. Well, within a year, everybody had done one. And so, the, you know, at the time, David Bowie, as a principal, was paying close attention to this. Now, why would any artist pay attention? This is a cookie-cutter recipe thing. And so, as, as legal issues mature, they decline not just in pricing power, but also your access declines with it because the people at the top who are the policymakers don't care about this anymore. The risk has been leached out of it through frequency.
0: That makes They're
1: sense. Whereas if you are focused on the industry, you will see the issues emerging the same time that the policymakers see them. you will, you will not only be relevant, you'll be in the front of the curve.
0: I agree. I agree. So, you heard it here, folks. It's the first time I've ever come right out and said to Mike Gaharo, I agree. I agree. Um, I'm not sure. So, what people on the podcast or listening don't know is that I can see Mike right now and he is enjoying life in Belize and he's drinking this, what looks to be a nasty green drink. Um, tell us a little bit about your personal life. You had some wonderful things happen and I think people would love to know where you are now, what you're doing and what the hell you're drinking.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll clear up the drinking part first. It's a, it's a mixture of coconut water and mohinga, which is a, a tropical root that has marvelous, uh, physical powers and all that sort of thing. But, um, Yes, I uh, I realized a, a lifelong dream. I've, I've always wanted to live on the beach on a tropical island. And so in June, uh, my wife, Zdeni, uh, and I did that. So we moved to Ambergris Key, which is a small, it's the largest of the islands off the coast of Belize. It's, uh, it's, it's a world-class dive and snorkel site. The Blue Hole is a, a global dive destination and that sort of thing. And so we're we're experiencing the expat community here, which is kind of interesting, as you might expect. Um, and we're learning something about the Mayan culture and that uh, we've only been here for three months. So it's, you know, we're new at this. And we had the ex- the uh, adventure of waiting for our household goods to actually arrive. They sat in a a shipping uh, warehouse in Miami for three months while we finished up all the immigration stuff so uh, it's a good thing we're not on video right now because all my clothes have been in a box for three months and they look like it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, I have a feeling um, I've lived on an island before I was fortunate enough to have that experience um, but I have a feeling you won't be needing those suits and ties as much my friend. No. Yeah. You know, what's funny
1: is uh, later this month I'm, I'm honored to be inducted into the College of Law Practice Management. And the, uh, the induction ceremony is in Boston in late October, and it's black tie. And I took my tuxedo out. And it, it, well, it looked like I'd been in a box for three months, right? <laughs> so, uh, and there, uh, needless to say, there are no dry cleaners on the island. There's not a lot of use I was going to there. ask
0: you that. I was going
1: to ask. Now, so I'm actually going to Boston a day early so that I could go to a dry cleaner and <laughs> <laughs> what is presentable. <laughs>
0: that's so great that's so great um i know that i I think that a lot of people would um rather have no suits or you know you know rather live the life that you're living and i think that's fantastic you've certainly earned it i want to say one of the things that i have always felt about michael harrow even before i got to know him like i do now um i loved him before i knew him and that speaks to your. point about understanding the idea of Mike Ohoro before you actually have a relationship with Mike Ohoro. Um, I think we have social media to thank for that. Um, and you know, that's, that's helped to make me more popular or not, whichever way you look at it <laughs> depends on what side of the aisle you're on. <laughs> um, 15,000 followers, many of them are frenemies. Um, I know that I'm not naive. But I wanna say that Mike has had some great ad- advice and now that we have the gift of digital technology like podcasting and videos, and we, can, we can see how enthusiastic he is about what he does. And I think the fact that he was a salesperson really sets him apart. Um, same for me, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I am a business executive, I'm not a non-attorney. Um, <laughs> I like to refer to myself as someone who brings the client perspective to the table. But the fact that we were salespeople uh, and I was a salesperson in financial services before I was in legal, I think that helps us to really know what we're talking about because we lived it. We actually lived it. So right now, a lot of law firms hire people who do their best to coach uh, attorneys and to train attorneys in business development best practices. But those people have never actually sold anything. So it's a challenge.
1: One of the things that I've observed in that respect, uh, when I first started doing this 20 odd years ago, um, I expected that I expected commercial salesperson interactions, you know, because I didn't know any better. And I discovered that lawyers don't have a pipeline. They have very few legitimate sales opportunities. And so the, the lead generation part of it is much more difficult for them and, and much more significant challenge and, and an important thing to surmount. The conversion part I find pretty easy, but what I learned was that, um, to, to piggyback on your point, Susan, is that the sales experience, you know, 30 years before, or 20 years before we started doing this, and um, I guess I'm still selling, but the, uh, the thing is you got to have a lot of different ways to solve a problem you know, a tactical problem. Okay, well, you know, here's the situation at this prospect and there are these you know, these people that are trying to slow me down and there's this person that won't respond and all that. And since all the lawyers that we're talking to all have different personalities and situations and levels of anxiety and, and that sort of thing, that we've got to be able to have lots of different ways to do whatever the thing needs done. So the two questions I end every conversation about every topical conversation is okay what I explained to you can you see that working because if that answer is not yes they're not going to try it and so we got to come up with another way it can't be this is the way no that's the way I would do it but they already showed me they're not going to so we can't leave it there and then the second question is are you comfortable trying this and if that answer is no, I got to come up with a different way. It doesn't matter why they're not comfortable. It, right. they're not gonna do it. The second thing um, that, that I learned, and this was a, a result of stumble upon research, you know, that there are four stages of competence in any new skill or idea or, or anything. And, and we all begin anything new at what's known as unconscious incompetence. That means that we don't know what we don't know. And that's where lawyers are relative to marketing and sales. The problem is that uh, the research shows that at unconscious incompetence, uh, a reliable trait is overconfidence in one's innate ability to do the thing based on ignorance of what it actually takes to do the thing. Gotcha. Okay. And so that explains part of the waste that we're trying to solve now because at unconscious incompetence, there's almost no appetite for training or remediation because you don't recognize a deficiency. Right, so right. Why are you going to get golf lessons if you think golf's easy, right? And so, exactly. And, and so it's only when we go out there on the course and find out how hard it is or when we go out in the marketplace and try some of this stuff, then we progress to uh, conscious incompetence. And at that point, we're ready for help. But until they make that transition, there's just no appetite. And it's not, it's not a fault of the lawyers. It's how humans respond to new ideas.
0: I was just going to say it sounds more like human nature um, than a fault of any particular personality or or, uh, title or role. Um, I will say that it takes a lot of courage once you do take that next step and you find out, oh, there is something I don't know that I should know or need to know. Uh, Because a lot of people will say, oh, I touched that and I got burned. I'm not going to touch that again. Instead of learning, you know, how to get around the fire or through the fire without getting burned or, you know, like I tell my 17 year old son, if you quit when the going gets tough, then you're not really great at anything. Anyone can quit when it gets hard. It's getting through the hard part and, and, and showing up on the other side of the difficulty or the challenge that makes you good at something. So well, you know, the, don't quit when it gets hard.
1: The, the other thing that emerges from that is that uh, the whole idea of persistence and practice um, lawyers have a, a, a lot of formal education. And so they are oriented towards checking off boxes on curricula. You know, oh, took that right. class, oh, up towards, check that one off, and that sort of thing. But we know that that's not how you learn and acquire skills. You, you, you get skills by doing whatever it is. Correct. And you practice it. Uh, I don't know if, uh, since it's the, the baseball postseason, if there are any baseball fans out there, indulge this. There's a
0: Go there's Red a, Sox.
1: Uh, Well, there's a, um, we'll see. They had their night the other night. We'll see. But um, no, there's a player by the name of Albert Pujols, who's most of his career was in St. Louis. He's now been in California since. But he is in a club of one in the entire history of Major League Baseball. He is the only player ever to average 30 home runs and a 300 batting average for his first 11 years in the league. The only person in the history of the game. And he was interviewed about this and he described his practice habits. Throughout the course of the year, he estimates that he takes about 20,000 practice swings. He's a number three hitter usually in, in his career, which means he gets an average of about 600 at-bats per year. The, the average for Major League Baseball is two, two pitches that you swing at during an at-bat. And so for 1,200 competitive swings, he takes 20,000 practice swings.
0: So I don't know how this man has arms (laughs) at this stage. (laughs) I don't know how he has any arms left, but that's pretty incredible. And that's a great, great um, example of commitment and working through the tough stuff and and facing the fear and the obstacles that are um, in your control and and working through those. So one more thing I would like to say before we go, Um, Mike, I, I tried to get my audience to relate to the guest in a uh, personal way, not just talk about business or products or services or what have you, but there's a lot about you that, that is very interesting. I mean, this move to the Island, that green drink you just drank. I mean, you should have seen the transformation folks. I mean, he's on video from the time he started (laughs) drinking the drink to now (laughs) eight years on his, you know, of his life. He's eight years younger. So another great thing about Mike is his love of and skill in and talent in music. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I don't know about the talent part. Love of and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I am passionate about music. I am a limited drummer, very limited. Uh, folks that I know that are actual musicians are Telling me that I'm being generous with that one, but but I did yeah, have
0: my I
1: did have my international debut last uh, last year in Costa Rica. Nice. I was, I was sitting in this bar on a late Sunday afternoon, late lunch, and this <laughs> band this band started playing. I'm reading my Kindle, and they're good. This blues band is playing, so I buy the band a round of drinks like I always do. And so during the break, they come over and they're chatting with me. And a guy says, "I saw you sitting there with you know, your hands and legs moving with a groove." He goes, "Are you a drummer?" I said, "Well, that might be a little generous, but I enjoy it." he says, you want to sit in with us? I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so I said, well, so we picked a couple of blue standards, you know, 12 bar blue shuffle and that sort of thing. And I had my international debut in Costa Rica. That is
0: so, so amazing. <laughs> I know a lot of politicians but, who've had their international debut in Costa Rica, but it <laughs> had nothing to do with playing drums. That's incredible. Yeah. How fun is that? So, so one drink, you're an air drummer. Two drinks, you can actually hit the sticks. That's great. That's so great. Well, Mike, it's been so much fun. I'm so happy for you and uh, your are newlywed. Your bride is beautiful. Um, it's Thank just fantastic. you. I'd love to hear more from you as the years go by and get a report on what's happening on the island and uh, eventually know that you, you have chucked all your suits and tuxedos and such. So I think... <laughs> hopefully you'll not need those too much but congratulations on the event in boston it's so well deserved Thank and uh, we will talk to you and hear from you soon
1: thanks susan i really appreciate the opportunity and uh, you you're a marvelous interviewer uh you know anytime anytime i look good it's the credit of the interview anytime i look like a bozo it's because they let me go on my own too long
0: oh no you were great you had a lot of good stuff to say and uh, you're the first Guest that I have actually watched on video while we've done this, uh, and it's fun how expressive you are while you talk. So, folks, he uses his hands, he's all over the place, he's living the story while he talks. He, he you know, I'm Italian, so I'm ne- you expect that from me, but um, it was really great, it was really fun. So, I hope you have a fantastic day, and Thank I will think this into a blog where um, you can click on the podcast icon and hear the podcast as well. And Mike and I will be sharing this across social media. So look for that on anchor and other podcast channels, as well as social media. Thanks everyone. And have a great day. Bye-bye.